Um, this is the uh, first reading that's taken from the Old Testament, Second Samuel, chapter six, starting at verse twelve through to verse twenty-three, and we're in the Good News translation this morning. King David heard that because of the covenant box, the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that he had. So he got the covenant box from Obed's house to take it to Jerusalem with a great celebration. After the men carrying the covenant box had gone six steps, David had them stop while he offered the Lord a sacrifice of a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing only a linen cloth around his waist, danced, danced with all his might to honor the Lord. And so he and all the Israelites took the covenant box up to Jerusalem with shouts of joy and the sound of trumpets. As the box was being brought to the city, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and jumping around in the sacred dance. And she was disgusted with him. They brought the box and put it in its place in the tent that David had set up for it. Then he offered sacrifices and fellowship offerings to the Lord. When he had finished offering the sacrifices, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty and distributed food to them all. He gave each man and woman in Israel a loaf of bread, a piece of roasted meat and some raisins. Then everyone went home. Afterward, when David went home to greet his family... Michael came out to meet him. The king of Israel made a big name for himself today, she said. He exposed himself like a fool in the sight of the servant women of his officials. David answered, I was dancing to honor the Lord, who chose me instead of your father and his family to make me the leader of his people, Israel. And I will go on dancing to honor the Lord. And will disgrace myself even more. You may think I am nothing, but those women will think highly of me. Michael, Saul's daughter, never had any children. We're going to read, first of all. We've heard the story of King David dancing. And now we're going to read the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Reading from verse 1 until I stop. You should think of us as Christ's servants who have been put in charge of God's secret truths. The one thing required of such servants is that they be faithful to their master. Now, I'm not at all concerned about being judged by you or by any human standard, and I don't even pass judgment on myself. My conscience is clear But that does not prove that I am really innocent. The Lord is the one who passes judgment on me. So you should not pass judgment on anyone before the right time comes. Final judgment will wait until the Lord comes. And he will bring to light the dark secrets and expose the hidden purposes of people's minds and then all will receive from God the praise they deserve. For your sake, my brothers and sisters, I have applied all this to Apollos and me, using the two of us as an example, 
so that you may learn what the saying says, what the saying means, observe the proper rules. None of you should be proud of one person and despise another. Who made you superior to others? Didn't God give you everything you have? Well then, how can you boast as if what you have were not a gift? Do you already have everything you need? Are you already rich? Have you become kings even though we are not? Well, I wish you really were kings so that we could all be kings together with you. For it seems to me that God has given the very last place to us apostles. Like people condemned to die in public as a spectacle for the whole world of angels and humanity. For Christ's sake, we are fools, but you are wise in union with Christ. We are weak, but you are honoured. And to this very moment we go hungry and thirsty and we are clothed in rags and we are beaten and we wander from place to place and we word ourselves out with hard work. When we are cursed, we bless. And when we are insulted, no, when we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are insulted, we answer with kind words. We are no more than this world's refuse. We are the scum of the earth to this very moment. Today is Low Sunday, presumably because it's such an anticlimax after the Easter of last week. However early in the year it might have come. We will have to see if we can remedy that. So now Friday was all fool's day, right? How many of you were caught in an April fool's joke? Stick your hands up, go on, be honest. Are you all so clever you all missed it? How many of you April fooled somebody else? Any more takers for that one? No? Okay. It must be losing its call. (laughs) April Fool's Day seems to go back to a misreading of a passage in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, would you believe? And as such, it seems to have become popular just as the court fool was falling out of favour. So we could describe it as the replacement for them. In years gone by, the nobility would employ a fool or a jester to entertain his court. And it began in ancient Egypt, no less, but became popular in England when the conquering Normans rather cruelly would find a Saxon who today we would describe as educationally challenged to make a fool of himself to the amusement of the court. Over time, this firmed up into a proper job. The role of a jester who would be kept with all his needs met in exchange for his entertainment value. And he would tell jokes and play games, 
do acrobatics and sing songs, often satirically, and generally entertain the court. Most important families would employ a fool or a jester throughout the Middle Ages. And Oliver Cromwell, who didn't have much of a sense of humour, brought the practice to an abrupt end in England when he had King Charles I beheaded in 1649. When King Charles II was restored in 1660, he didn't restore the role of jester to his court. Instead, he encouraged the establishment of theatres and music halls. You didn't know they went back that far, did you? (laughs) The very last British noble family to employ a jester was the Lyon family, who were the Earls of Strathmore and Kingshorn in Scotland. This is their castle at Glans, near Dundee. And there was you thinking that life with the lions meant Longleat. <laughs> they continued to employ a fool right up to the early 18th century. The 14th Earl of Strathmore was Claude Bowes Lyon, whose daughter, Lady Elizabeth, married Prince Albert, the Duke of York, on the 26th of April, 1923. And in December 1936... Prince Albert became King George VI on the abdication of his brother, King Edward VIII. And in due course, their eldest daughter has since become Queen Elizabeth II. Now, a story. There was once a king in the days of long ago who had a fool. Now, the fool was the king's favourite person in the whole wide world, with the possible exception of the queen. The fool could tell jokes and sing songs, dance as well as do acrobatics, and he was particularly good at doing impressions. His impression of the prime minister would have the king... And everybody else, apart from the Prime Minister, rolling round the aisles with mirth. The fool was well loved by all of the king's court, including those that he lampooned mercilessly wherever the opportunity presented itself. And he could get away with saying things that others would land up in the royal dungeons for saying. One day, the king gave his fool a wand in recognition of his exceptional foolishness. And he said, I give you this royal wand as a special award for being the most foolish man in all my kingdom." And he went on, if you should find anybody else in my kingdom who is more foolish than yourself, then you must give them this wand. So the fool set off to tour the kingdom. 
and he, in order to find the person who was more foolish than himself. And he walked uphill and down dale and visited every town and village in the country. After some time, the king took ill and he called for his fool. And his courtiers tracked down the fool and summoned him to the king's bedside. When the fool arrived back at the palace, he was ushered into the king's bedchamber and the king began to explain. My dear fool, he said, I don't have long for this life. I'm going on a long journey to meet my maker. And he continued, and I won't be coming back. Tell me, responded the fool, have you made preparations for this journey? And the king looked at him with a puzzled expression. And he replied, preparations? Um, no. And you've known about this journey for some time, persisted the fool. And the king replied, um, yes. Ah, said the fool, I have found the person in your kingdom, sire, who is more foolish than myself. Oh, well done, said the king. Who is it? It is you, sire. It is you who has failed to prepare yourself to meet your maker, even though you have known that the day would surely come. So I hereby present you with this wand as the most foolish person in all your kingdom. And the king was speechless. There are two different psalms, 14 and 53, both attributed to King David, that tell us fools say to themselves, there is no God. The dateline was about 1000 BC, although they didn't know that. David had been acclaimed as the king of Judah <clears throat> following the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan in battle. And the northern tribes of Israel had appointed one of Saul's surviving sons, Ishbosheth, as their king. However, Ishbosheth was soon assassinated, which is just as well because I find such difficulty trying to say it. However, he was soon assassinated by his soldiers who thought that they were king, doing King David a favour. However, David was not amused and he took revenge on all of those who had dealt a blow against any of Saul's sons. The only surviving son was a crippled lad called Mephibosheth, who he took into a form of protective custody in order to keep him safe. David fought and won a battle. David fought and won a battle for the Jebusite fortress of Jabus, which was henceforth known as David's city. We know it as Jerusalem. And he made Jerusalem his capital city, and had a fine palace built there for himself. Then he had the tent of the Lord, 
moved there from Kiryat Yarim on what proved to be the last time before the fixed temple was built by King Solomon. The Ark of the Covenant, meanwhile, had been captured by the Philistines who lived on the coastal plain to the west. David had beaten them in battle and they in turn sent the Ark back. However, the journey had not been uneventful and the Ark arrived at Jerusalem only after a three-month stay with the family of Obed-Edom, apparently a Moabite family living in Philistia. This had followed an incident involving the death of one of the sons of Abinadab, a man called Uzzah, who was escorting the Ark back to Jerusalem. Upon its arrival at Jerusalem, David was ecstatic. He made a blood sacrifice and started danced wearing no more than a loincloth. However, his wife, Michael, was not impressed. She, one of the few remaining children of Saul, clearly was not caught up in the spirit of the proceedings. And instead, she criticised David harshly, saying, The king of Israel made a big name for himself today. He exposed himself like a fool in the sight of the servant women of his officials. The Bible then cryptically goes on to say that Michael never had any children, which is probably code for David and Michael having become estranged from each other. And it wasn't long after that David's eye was attracted to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Jesus told a number of parables about foolishness, and the one about house builders is to be found recorded in Matthew's Gospel, at the end of the three-chapter section known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is one of two bodies of teachings that Jesus presented to us in one form or another in all three of the synoptic Gospels, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The three versions are not exactly the same and appear to emphasise different aspects of Jesus' teaching. <clears throat> the parable about the two house builders is not so much part of the sermon, but rather a separate lesson about what we should do with the teaching that we had previously received. When the garage that I now live in was being converted into a dwelling, the builder had to adhere to a very thick book of building regulations that had been put together over the years so that my wife and I, among others, would be safe when living in our new house. He had strict instructions about plumbing, drainage, electrics, and much else besides. And among those instructions was a minimum headroom on each of the floors. On the ground floor, the headroom was about 12 feet, and all was well. 
But upstairs, what had been a hayloft had a headroom of only six feet. And this meant that the builder had to remove the intermediate floor and rebuild it 18 inches lower. Quite a torturous feat. And this then conformed to the building regulations, but also meant that getting dressed was much more easy as I could now lift my hands above my head. In first century Palestine, there was no building regulations and people could build more or less where and how they liked. This didn't mean everything... This didn't make everything go awry as the people who built houses would pass on their best techniques from father to son, down the generations. And the only bit about building houses that was unique to each house was the site. And picking a good site and laying a good foundation was particularly important in a land that was predominantly desert where laying a good foundation wasn't overseen by a buildings inspector. Even today, it takes a flood or a storm to reveal the lack of wisdom involved in building houses in the wrong place. There is currently a hoo-ha going on over people being allowed to build houses on floodplains. And on Boxing Day last year, This unoccupied public house collapsed into the River Irwell at Somerset near Bury when the raging river destroyed the bridge upon which the pub was built. Perhaps the story that Jesus told was a call to build for the storms. Let us not assume that life will always be good that hard times will come. That we will be stricken down with sickness, unemployment, accident, poverty, grief, and ultimately, death. If God's words are to mean anything at all, they will be words for the hard times. Words that will encourage us to go on when everything else in us is ready to give up. This is the wisdom of God. And the fools are those who ignore it. Paul also made reference to foolishness in several different places. Paul makes reference to the wisdom of the Greeks, of which they were both very proud and very famous. And he said that the gospel was seen as foolishness by the Greeks because it didn't conform to the wisdom of which they were so proud. He goes on to say that God's wisdom is of a different order to man's wisdom. And in different places affirms that God's wisdom will often look like foolishness in the eyes of men. He even goes on to affirm that the gospel is so significant for him that he was happy to be considered a fool for the sake of Christ and the gospel. It often feels foolish to be affirming that God is real and that Jesus is alive, especially in front of eminent skeptics 
like Richard Dawkins, who can marshal together intelligent-sounding arguments about why God is only a figment of our imagination. Standing against a university professor can be quite intimidating, and we can feel very foolish in even opposing such a man. This man is Alistair McGrath, a much more likable person. He was born and brought up in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, as an atheist. And he gained an honours degree in biochemistry in Oxford University back in 1975. And in 1976, after finding Jesus as saviour, he enrolled on a theology course. And in 1978 gained a first-class honours degree He then studied for ordination, this time at Cambridge University, becoming a deacon in the Church of England in 1980. He has spent almost all of his life since in academia and has so many letters after his name, I couldn't fit them all on the slide. He has three doctorates in science, theology and literature and has occupied professorial chairs in Cambridge and London universities. And he is currently working as a professor of science and theology back at Oxford, where Richard Dawkins was. His life is a worthy testament to the power of God. There could be no man better qualified to take on Richard Dawkins. He has written a number of books refuting the writings of Richard Dawkins. For example, The Dawkins Delusion, after Dawkins had written The God Delusion. Dawkins God and The Twilight of Atheism. All good reads, all worth going for, you know. And there were many, many others that he's written over the years. He's also taken part in several debates with Dawkins. So don't despair if Dawkins or others like him just seem too clever for you. Equally, we can find ourselves tempted to follow the crowd. And when that crowd holds to principles and practices that we find questionable at least, The story is told of a Christian who was giving directions to his friend from an out-of-town to get to a Billy Graham rally. And he said, go to the end of the street, turn right, take the second left and follow the crowd. So he did that. But the crowd he followed took him into a football stadium, okay, so far, for a football match. Following the crowd is never a good idea unless you are very sure where the crowd is going to end up. A quote that has been variously attributed, sometimes you get quotes like this where everybody seems to claim credit for it, don't you? But here it is, it's variously attributed to Edmund Burke, John Stuart Mill and John F. Kennedy. And the second two may well have been quoting the first anyway. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. 
The thing that often stops us intervening in such debates is the fear of looking foolish. The fear that we are out-argued by those cleverer than ourselves. My old minister used to quote a scabos... Wrong teeth in today. The Scottish Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Peter Marshall, and he used to quote him very frequently. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Our problem with foolishness is not usually that others think of us as foolish, but rather that we think of ourselves as foolish. The fool for Christ is the one who has the courage to speak out the truth, regardless of whether it is approved of or fashionable or not. <clears throat> 